On Sunday, we take our upcoming Wednesday night study and take a small section. And I have three verses that I wanna show you, and they're amazing verses. Uh, and uh, I'll show you why they're amazing. Not that, you know, you really couldn't say that one scripture is greater than another scripture. Uh, it's all inspired by God. But this is a special scripture, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but it has to do with some trades. Um, you know, how would you like to trade, you know, liberty for captivity? you know, uh, or bondage for freedom. Like, are those good trades? <laughs> it depends on which side you're on, right? If you're in captivity, freedom's a good trade. I'll trade you for freedom. Or what about beauty for ashes? Um, is that a good trade? If you just have a life full of ashes, is beauty a good thing? Well, yeah, there's all kinds of good trades that the Lord's gonna offer to us through the Messiah, Jesus. You see here in Isaiah, and why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 61 for today's text. Isaiah, you know, uh, we've been studying, you know, through this book and we've seen some messianic scriptures that are amazing. Now the word messianic, that's just a fancy way of saying, speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah, uh, that the Jews knew was coming, uh, but they didn't know what to expect. That's the problem, the coming Messiah. When Jesus came, have you ever wondered why is it that the Jews missed that he was the Messiah? Remember when Jesus rode the little colt there into the, uh, the donkey there into uh, Jerusalem and then he stopped and he wept and he said, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known in this thy day. What, what day? That this was the day that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and the Jews largely missed it. Well, Brett, they were crying out, Hosanna, save now. See the problem? They didn't realize what they were asking. They were asking for salvation locally for the Jews, for the Roman Empire. The Romans were, you know, having their iron fist <clears throat> constantly crushing Jerusalem. And the Jews were thinking, this is our king. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, they're crying out. <clears throat> but then why, a few days later, were they all crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. What was going on there? Well, it has to do with their perception of you know, who the Messiah would actually be. And you know, the problem is, it, you know, it was a fairly narrow view of who the Messiah would be, but how would they have known? Well, the answer is the book of Isaiah. You see, the scriptures before us, and we'll see this on Wednesday, Isaiah chapter 60 and 61 particularly are about the Messiah but here's the thing you need to understand. Largely, not completely, but largely what Isaiah 60 and 61 is about is the Messiah as it is when he comes in the millennial kingdom. When Christ comes, the second coming of Christ, when he comes, he's gonna rule and reign over this earth. And there's so much the Bible says about that time called the millennial kingdom, a thousand years where Christ is gonna rule and reign. One of the cool things is that there's gonna be an end of transgression. You know what that means? An end of sin. Is anybody looking forward to that? Isn't that gonna be a great time when there's no more sin on the earth? Boy, it's hard to even fathom uh, or imagine no sin, but that's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be an end of transgression. Daniel chapter nine tells us when Christ comes and rules and reigns, it's gonna be a whole different deal. But the problem is the Jews, they saw the, the coming of the Messiah as a one event, one time deal. They didn't see in their Hebrew Bible, which they could have had they been open and you know, led by the Spirit to, to see it, they missed it. And I'm not saying we would have done better, I'm just saying they missed it because they saw a one-dimensional uh, coming of Christ. 
the Messiah. So when this guy from Nazareth, uh, son of a carpenter, comes stumbling into Jerusalem and riding on the colt of a donkey, was that the Messiah that they had imagined? You know, um, you know, Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem on mighty Bucephalus, a huge horse. But Jesus, the Messiah, has anybody seen anybody ride a donkey before? I've seen this a lot. In fact, I've seen some of you guys ride donkeys. When, when we go to Israel, when you go to Petra, you can rent a donkey and it takes you up a, a certain hill. And it's all, I always say, well, knock yourself out if you want to ride a donkey. But it, it'll beat you up, man. That little, it's like, there's no way to ride a donkey and look cool at the same time. Impossible. Uh, and, and it's so funny, these people rent the donkey. Ah, and, and, but, but, but here's Jesus riding a donkey. It's, there's no way to look cool riding on a donkey. And so, so you wonder, you know, the, the, the Jews, you don't really blame them because they read Isaiah 60 and 61. They had Daniel's prophecy about the end of transgression and, you know, and bringing in an everlasting kingdom where he'd set up his mighty throne in Jerusalem. You know, the Jews were thinking, this is what's gonna happen. And by the way, it will. You see, when Jesus came, it wasn't exactly what their mindset really was, that he would come as a suffering savior. Now, how could they have known that? Well, we know, it's easy for us in hindsight to look at Isaiah 53. We studied that a few weeks ago, where you know Jesus would come and man, the cross is spelled out perfectly for us in the book of Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was beaten and bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced with nails. And he would you know, have the whipping on his back. All of this stuff would be pro- prophesied by Isaiah. Their coming Messiah would be a suffering savior. And it's almost like the Jews, I wonder if they read that, you know, back in the day, like, oh yeah, whatever, forget that part. Let's go back to the part where he rules and reigns for all eternity that he sets up an everlasting kingdom. That's the part we like. I don't know about this other stuff, but, but and so the Jews were kind of expecting this, this massive kingdom to be set up. But here's the thing. How would they have known? You know, now we know because the Bible, it makes it so clear that he was coming first as the suffering savior, then as a conquering king. But it would be two uh, advents, if you would. The, the first advent, second advent, if you're a liturgical person who grew up in the Catholic church or Episcopal church, <clears throat> they call it you know, ad, advent. But the idea is comings. His first coming would be as a suffering savior. His second coming will be as a conquering king. The first coming, he came to be judged by men. The second coming, he's gonna be the judge over all men. Um, and that's why to this very day, if you go to Israel, the Jews are still looking for their Messiah. Um, they, di- they just rejected largely Jesus as the Messiah. Now, good news for the Jews. Um, they're looking for the Messiah, and there's coming a day, the Bible tells us, where all the Jews will suddenly realize that Jesus, the one that they missed the first coming, they'll realize that he is the Messiah. I love Romans 11, 25 and 26 talks about how, you know, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all of Israel will be saved. Man, that's gonna be a glorious time for the Jews when they see that Jesus, that their eyes will be opened. Right now the Bible says the Jews' blindness in part has happened to Israel, that they don't see Jesus as the Messiah, but they will. So it's the two comings that kind of confuse people. When Jesus rode in on Jerusalem, they didn't even see that. They thought, who's this guy? We will not have this man rule over us. But Jesus was doing, a, which one's bigger, by the way, the first coming or the second coming? Well, the truth is, as I look at it, you can't have the second one unless you had the first one. What do you mean? 
Well, the, the, the coming kingdom where Christ rules and, and reigns on this earth, he would be ruling and reigning no one because we'd all be in hell burning for all eternity. If Jesus didn't come the first time, there'd be no salvation for humanity whatsoever because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus came and died on the cross dealing with the sins of humanity so that people could be saved, both in Old Testament times, our day, and even in the future. Jesus died once for all sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. So this idea of the first coming and the second coming, what's, what's kind of fun when you read this book of Isaiah is to try to discern which coming are we talking about? So when we go to Isaiah 53 and talk about how he's wounded for our transgressions, despised and hated, those kinds of things, then we know, well, that's his first coming. So here's the question, and this, I'm gonna give you a little heads up. This is a trick question. What we're about to read, these three little verses, is it talking about the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? That's your assignment as we read this, okay? So let's read this messianic scripture. Um, I'm gonna give you a heads up. This is Jesus talking through the Holy Spirit to Isaiah as he writes this down. Um, uh, and, and you'll see why, I'll prove that in a minute. Uh, but let's read these three little verses, Isaiah 61, verse one. It says there, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, that's, the, that's Jehovah, hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. <clears throat> he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, <clears throat> to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, <clears throat> to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Wow, some good stuff here. Um, before we kind of break this all down, let's talk about what the Messiah um, came to do. Whether you're talking about the first coming or the second coming, that's, remember that's your assignment. Which, is this talking about the, the first coming or the second coming of Christ? Think about that for a second. But, but basically I wanna take a look at this and realize there's some words here that I, I'm, I'm kind of taken by. And that is, remember I told you that we've all sinned, we've all fall short, fall short of the glory of God. Well, what's the, what's the repercussions of sin? There's a nice list here uh, for us. Um, first of all, jot it down, brokenhearted. That's what it says there. The Lord comes to bind up the brokenhearted. Uh, that's the results of sin, is brokenheartedness. That's one of the things nobody measures when they take up sin. I'm gonna sin right now, and they never realize it leaves you in a brokenhearted situation. Have you ever found your sins to leave you brokenhearted? We think of brokenheartedness as when your boyfriend breaks up with you, or your girlfriend breaks up with you. Oh, I'm so brokenhearted. Well, that's, that's true too. Um, but, but the idea of brokenheartedness is, is that you know that something could have been that was not. You know, and, and something that you loved was taken away. That, that often leads to brokenheartedness. And oftentimes that's what your sin leaves you in that condition of being brokenhearted, where you've lost a certain innocence or you've lost an opportunity because of your own sinful behavior. And sin does, in fact, leave you brokenhearted. I wished I could, you know, sort of 
show the congregation what I've seen just over the years as a pastor. I think pastors see brokenheartedness. I, I remember, um, you know, a time a few years back when I, I saw this, this guy who was this t- man's man. You know, he's one of those guys that's a welder um, and really good at his job. And, um, you know, uh, he, he had calloused hands and just kind of just the, the guy that everybody go, that guy, that's, that's a tough hombre right there. He, he's, he's got it going on. He looked confident. We saw him walking around the church, just he thought, that guy's got it going on. But he came into my office one afternoon and just cried like a baby. And I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I, I, I just saw this guy, and the last thing I pictured him is coming and, and bawling in front of me. But it was a deep brokenheartedness. And what it was, was his own sin that had really destroyed his family. I, I don't think I've, I, I can remember, I've seen brokenheartedness, but I, there was something about this guy that just struck me as, as the most brokenhearted guy I think I'd ever seen. And he was broken because of his behaviors. It, it isolated him because of his sin. His wife was leaving him, his children, did not respect him, and he lost pretty much everything that he loved. And he was in a total broken-hearted condition. Now, I got a good story about that, by the way. Um, you know, he's one of these guys, I thought he stumbled into church Sunday after Sunday. I was sure, well, this guy's a believer. He wasn't a believer. He, he came to church because his wife dragged him to church every Sunday. And he confessed that to me. And I said, well, the reason your life is, and I'm gonna use this word for a reason, is in ashes right now, is because you need to be saved. Your, your life and, and all of our lives, apart from Christ, is gonna lead to this brokenheartedness and prison and ashes, you see? And I was able to explain to him that he needed to repent of his sin and be saved. And man, in bawling in tears, the guy accepted Christ. And, and it took a while, it took a while, but the Lord restored his family and his marriage and brought the guy into good standing. And, and to this day, he's a man who walks with Christ. It, it's, it's so good to see when the healing of a brokenhearted person has happened. But brokenheartedness, that's a result of sin. And it, sin will ultimately get you there. Be sure of this, the Bible says, sin will find you out. Brett, is this another fire and brimstone sermon? You did that last week. We talked about wickedness. And you've been kind of on a roll on this stuff. Well, this, this is the one, this is the section of Isaiah where we start to see the beauty. But let's list a few more scary words. First of all, brokenhearted. Number two, captivity. Captivity. It says here uh, that the Lord will proclaim liberty to the captives. Sin will lead you into captivity. Um, where you're in bondage. Um, you're stuck. You know, what person, you know, takes their first drink of alcohol and says, I'm going to become an alcoholic today. I'm going to be in bondage where I cannot quit. I'm taking up, I, I know this is going to make people mad, uh, and it always does, but I, I, I sometimes wonder when we label stuff like, you know, alcoholism as a disease. Because I've seen disease, and disease is bad, but most diseases, you don't go to the store and buy it. I'd like some more disease, please. Give me some Jack Daniels. <laughs> I'd like to buy some disease. Um, no, alcohol is a substance and it's abusing of that substance that leads to captivity. But instead of calling it captivity or being trapped or snared or stuck, we call it a, a disease. I'm a victim. We love to put ourselves in the victim category. And when you call alcoholism a disease, it makes you into a victim. That's why people don't like when I say this. 
Because you have friends that are alcoholics, you're like, no, but they're a victim to alcoholism. They, they have a disease. The Bible doesn't call alcoholism a disease. Did you know that? The Bible calls it sin. That's what the Bible calls it. And there's no excuse. But see, Satan wants to trap you into captivity and keep you there. He'll put whatever he can out there to snare you, to lure you and hook you. If you're out there fishing and you get your lure and your bait and the fish takes a bite, did the fish take and bite a disease? No, they got lured and they got hooked and they got stuck and they're gonna be someone's dinner. That's, that's the truth of the matter. Listen to this, it's, it's 2 Timothy chapter two, uh, verse 26, speaking of those that um, you know, uh, are prone to sin, Paul tells young Timothy, he says, and they, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who is taken captive by will, by him, pardon me, at his will. Let me read that again. Uh, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Satan wants to take people into captivity at his own will. And he wants to snare you. Sin does that, and it leads to captivity, um, and that's the problem. So captive, the next word is the same. Uh, the word bound, at the end of verse one in our text, he says he's gonna open the prison to them that are bound. You know, captivity and bondage, that's what Satan wants to get you in. That's why he dangles sin. It's a lure, you know. Isn't it funny how we get all lured into sin by the, by the enemy, and he wants to keep you there. That's a bummer. Sin is such a bummer because it leaves you brokenhearted, in captivity, bound, but also, notice there, there's another word here, mourning, or pardon me, ashes. Let's go to ashes. Verse three, to appoint them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes. That's where sin leaves us, in a pile of ashes, and how appropriate that is um, today as we see you know, uh, a lot of our area burned to ashes. Many of you had ash on your cars uh, as we were covered in ash, Portland, for a couple of weeks, just thick ash, um, you know. And the Lord says, this is what sin will do. It leaves us in ashes. And then also mourning, it says, uh, and the oil of joy for mourning. People are in mourning because of sin. Sin always leads to sorrow. Do you know that? You always get nailed by sin. If you think you're getting away with it, you will. The Bible even says, it doesn't even lie to us about this. It says, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but that's only a short season. And the shortness of sin, the love, the pleasure that we have, it only lasts for a short, short season. So you've got bondage and ashes, mourning, but there's one other one here, it says the spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness. Have you ever had that spirit of heaviness where you just can't put your finger on it, call it depression? Call it just the blues, whatever you want, but, but there's a, a spirit of heaviness and you can't always explain it. <laughs> I think you guys know what I'm talking about. There was a spirit of heaviness during the fires. You couldn't even breathe. Some of us felt claustrophobic. As if you stepped outside, you were breathing thick smoke these you know, past few weeks and you had, I don't know, I had a spirit of heaviness and I don't know if it was because of the smoke or because I had kidney stones <laughs> or because I had gout. Now, let me explain something. I've, I've had gout. Uh, it's, a, it's like a, uh, kind of an arthritis type thing that has to do with acid buildup and stuff in your, and I, I've had this for years, but I haven't had a gout attack for a decade. Feeling great. But then I got kidney stones. Now, there are two things that women have told me, many women have told me, Brett, there's, there's, there's some pain that is likened to childbirth. Uh, one is having a kidney stone. 
I'm like, oh great, okay, baby number one. But women that have also had gout, they say gout pain is about the same as childbirth. I've heard that many times. So I had twins during, the, uh, <laughs> during this uh, smoke uh, time. And man, I was in pain. I also got this massive toothache. You know, I've got like one cavity in my, in my life. And th- that's the one. I was like, wow. And, um, and I was, so I was in pain and I was in the smoke and I had a spirit of heaviness about me. I'm not normally prone to that, but man, it was just kind of a heavy time. Some of you felt that too. And, and so these words that I read here, um, the reason I like to focus on these uh, first is because Jesus is the answer for each one of these, the Messiah. He's coming to take care of all these things. What is he gonna do? Number one, he's gonna bind up the brokenhearted. If you're brokenhearted, he binds you up. The word binding up there is something in the Hebrew, the Jews would have recognized it uh, having to do with medicine and healing because they would bind up wounds. That's the way they would phrase it. If you were in battle and you came home and you had a slice on your arm from someone's sword, what would they do? Would they give you stitches? No. Nope. They would bind up your womb. They'd kind of close up the wound and then they'd wrap tightly your arm and hope that your skin would grow back together. And it would, miraculously by God's healing, you know, your body is made where when it's bound up, eventually that skin kind of grows back together and you're healed. What does the Lord do? Because of our sin, we've been sliced and diced. We've been wounded, but the Lord, he comes, Jesus comes to bind up wounds and to heal us. I love that about the brokenhearted. If you've been brokenhearted, man, the Lord is the one who can bind up your broken heart. But also the captivity, the problem of captivity, when you and I get stuck in sin and become addicts or in bondage, snared by the devil, one of the things the Bible says is he proclaims liberty to the captives. What does Jesus do? He proclaims this. You know, if if the son has made you free, you are what? You're free indeed. Now, I, I, again, I, I know I'm in hot water with some of the people that are 12-steppers or you know, the, the people that say alcoholism is a disease. But interesting, when, when it comes to sin and our addiction and stuff that we're in, it's not just alcoholism. We can talk about pornography. We can talk about gambling. Whatever things you know, that tend to, to make, you can talk about your, your, your iPhone, whatever makes you an addict. Um, those are the things that I think the enemy uses as a snare to get you. But one of the beautiful things is Jesus comes to to declare liberty to the captive. Um, And it's not a 12-step program, as it turns out. Because if he has um, set you free, you are free indeed. And when Jesus says, I declare you free, what does that mean? It means you're free indeed. You see, I I have to say the 12-step program has helped a lot of people, especially when Jesus was the higher power. Originally, that was the plan. Uh, but you know, they lost that and said, oh, whoever your higher power is, whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or that doorknob or whatever, let, let that higher power be your strength. And that's where they lost it totally. But isn't it interesting that Jesus says, if you're in captivity, guess what? I will declare liberty to the captive. It's not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program where when you come to Christ and you repent of your sins, that has to be a part of it, change your mind and say, I'm I'm gonna change my mind about that sin, I'm gonna go to Christ. Christ is the one who can set you free. And I've been around ministry long enough to see people who've been addicted to a lot of things. And you can go to the 12-step program and there are certain victories and blessings from that, 
But you know what? I've also seen hundreds over the last, you know, 30 plus years of ministry, I've seen hundreds of people immediately delivered from their captivity. Because that's what Jesus does. He came, the Messiah came to declare liberty to the captives. You either believe that or you don't. And so here's one of the great benefits. Not only does he bind up the brokenhearted, but he sets the captivity person, the person in, in jail, he sets them free. And that's the bound part too. In verse uh, one, it says, liberty to the captives and opening the, of the prison to them that are bound. Are you bound up by something? Repent of your sins, confess your sins. What does the Bible say? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what Jesus came to do. That's why he came, the Messiah. To heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, to open the prison doors, but also, verse three, to exchange or to give beauty for ashes. This is such a great phrase. This is, this is why you've probably sang songs where they talk about beauty for ashes because it's such a, a great picture. There's nothing more worthless than ashes. I guess if you're gardening, uh, maybe you know some ashes are good in your soil. <laughs> but, but other than that, ash doesn't have a lot, especially if your house burned down in Malala um, or, you know, or in Detroit City there, um, Detroit Lake. You know, those poor folks up there, they go up and they see just a big pile of ashes of once, that which was their life. But you know, there's a lot of people that lie, their lives end up in ashes. I was in downtown Portland the other day again and just seeing, you know, the apocalyptic scenes there in Portland, it's so sad. Downtown Portland is just kind of lost. And there's, you know, the tents and the garbage just piled up on the side of the streets and, and, and just, just people that are just lost whether they're you know, homeless because of drug addiction or homeless because of mental illness or whatever the situation is. But if you take time, and I have talked to some of the homeless people, it's kind of amazing what you'll find. See, a lot of people, especially in you know, suburban you know, Oregon, we kind of look at those, people like, what are those people? Who are they, these zombies that are living downtown? But when you actually talk to them, you'll find that they're real people that oftentimes once had real lives um, I've met people that are homeless that were once medical doctors. I met one guy that was an attorney. I met another woman when we were downtown ministering years ago. I met, remember this woman. She, I, I couldn't figure out what was the deal with her because she was so smart. She was like the, one of the smartest people. I was trying to share the Bible with her, but she knew the Bible better than I did. And I was like, man, what's going on here? And, and the, it seemed to me as we got to know her, she had a tragic event in her life that just derailed her. And so frustrated and not knowing what to do, she basically just gave up on life altogether. But you realize these are people that their lives are in ashes. And for whatever reason, whether it is drugs or mental illness or whatever, laziness, whatever the thing is, their lives are in ashes. And the thing that I love about Jesus is he doesn't discriminate, but he'll trade beauty for ashes to anybody who wants it. Anybody whose life is in ashes. If you ever find your life in ashes, everything ruined, like the welder that sat in my office that day, man, I'll tell you, the Lord is good at exchanging beauty for ashes. Um, that which is worthless, he'll, he'll trade you. That's a good trade. 
Have you ever made a good trade? That's the best trade you'll ever make is beauty. Lord, I'll take your beauty for my ashes. We'll trade, we'll swap. And that's what the Lord, that's what he came to do. Beauty for ashes. And then the last one, that phrase that we looked at, <clears throat> the spirit of heaviness. <clears throat> you see this out in the world, by the way. Right now, I think there's a spirit of heaviness more than ever. With all the dilemmas that we have, with the politics and the social issues of the day, man, there's this huge spirit of heaviness, more than I can remember in my lifetime. The world is just filled. There's a spirit of heaviness no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. People are heavy right now. But the Lord says about this, he says, I will give the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. What a good change. I'll take a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness anytime. So this is what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to do. Aren't you glad that we have Jesus? Aren't you glad that we can take all of our sadness and sorrow and our captivity and our bondage, all the things that are a direct result of our own sinful behavior, Jesus is the one who says, I'll swap that out for you. And how is that possible? Because of his first coming. When Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, he dealt with sin. He took, and instead of, you say, Brett, what, what did I give? How do I get beauty for ashes? Like, you don't get anything for free. Well, your salvation and those ashes was your life being exchanged for beauty. That came at a great price. Do you know that? People that hear me teach about God's grace, that you're saved by grace. The Bible says that. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. In other words, you and I don't earn salvation. We don't earn beauty for ashes. It's a gift, but it, it wasn't free. It came at a huge price. There's some people out there say, you guys teach about a cheap grace. You know who says that? People that believe you're saved by works. But if you're good enough, you'll get to heaven. Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you're saved by grace through faith, but they say it's cheap grace. Well, that's an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp. You know, or, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I gotta come up with some new oxymorons, but uh, the one that I used to love was Microsoft Works. Remember that? <laughs> um, uh, or things like that. Uh, one soldier came up and told me, military intelligence. Uh, I was like, oh man, don't, don't be so hard on our, our uh, military. But uh, oxymoron, cheap grace. Grace is a lot of things, but one thing that's it's not is cheap. Grace, that is undeserved, unearned favor that God wants to give to you. All this list that we just went over, Jesus giving you freedom, liberty, <clears throat> a, a, a spirit of joy instead of a spirit of heaviness, that came at a huge price. When somebody comes up and says, you teach a cheap grace, you know, that gets my dander up. They're saying that what Jesus did on the cross was nothing. Jesus paid a massive price. You owed a debt you could not pay. He paid a debt that he did not owe. And he did it because he loved us. Christ, he came, died on the cross, rose from the grave, paying the price for our sins. And because Jesus the Messiah came, guess what? We are delivered. Jesus does all of that for us. And so, man, if you're a Christian, Good news, he's the one that heals the brokenhearted, open wide the prison doors, sets joy into those that are mourning. That's the Jesus that we serve and love and he paid a price to make that happen, the ultimate price.
Now, not only does he do those things, but I also wanna tell you, he also makes it so that you can go to heaven and live eternally with, with the Lord. You don't go to hell, that's where we deserve. We deserve to go to hell, but Christ died so that we might have eternal life. Now, all that to say, if you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted Christ, you gotta be, become a Christian. You gotta repent and say, I'm changing my mind. That's what repentance means. Do an about face and say, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I deserve punishment for my sin, but you're accepting what Jesus is giving. All of these things and heaven as well. That's what the person who says, I, I, I wanna become a Christian. You're not becoming a Christian so that your life is perfect. That's not a promise God makes. Uh, your life might even get worse if you become a Christian. The Bible says if you follow Jesus, you're gonna be persecuted. People are gonna not like you um, for becoming a Christian. But here's what I want you to know. Salvation comes only through Jesus. You can't save yourself. You can't you know, uh, be saved by your good deeds. It's all through Jesus Christ alone. Now, here's the question I asked earlier. Is this a messianic prophecy speaking of the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? Anybody wanna take an answer? How many of you guys think this is talking about his first coming? How many of you guys think it's talking about his second coming? How many of you guys think it's both? Yes, right. See, I told you it was a trick question. How do you know, Brett, this is talking about? Well, this is where it gets really cool. I love this. Does anybody know what the first sermon Jesus preached was or his first scripture that he shared with people when he was in this, in this world? What was the first scripture? It was Isaiah 61 verses one and two. But I'll show you why he didn't finish the sentence. Check this out. Go with me to Luke chapter four. This is, we're almost done, but I wanna show you this. This is, this is a pretty great story. Now that we're a little bit familiar with uh, Isaiah 61, this will help us in Luke chapter four. Of course, Luke's there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, they're in your New Testament. But in Luke chapter four, Jesus, you know, had, had just been baptized. Uh, he was led out into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil uh, for 40 days. Uh, remember that whole story? But then he starts his ministry right after that. Jesus gets going. Um, and what's one of the first things he does? Well, he goes to this town that he grew up in. After being tempted, he makes his way back to Nazareth. Um, now, Nazareth is an interesting place in Israel. I've been there many times myself, but I, I don't really take our groups there as much, and I'll tell you why. Because um, the city of Nazareth during the time of Christ was about the size of this room, maybe smaller. S smaller than this room. That's how big the city of Nazareth was. Tiny. <clears throat> and, um, and so uh, one, of, one of the things that's kind of a bummer is when you go to Israel, the Catholics tend to build giant cathedrals and stuff over things that are important. So Nazareth's kind of an important thing. And since it was small, they built a huge cathedral over what was actually the city. So if you wanna go see the city of Nazareth in its archeological ruin, you have to go into this big cathedral. And by that time, it takes all the fun out of it, if you ask me. But, uh, but all that to say, it's not, it's not much to see, <clears throat> but, but just being in Nazareth is kind of cool. Um, it's, it makes me think about stuff. Like Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Did you know that when you're on Nazareth, you're up on this hillside and there's these steep cliffs off the side that go down into a valley called the Valley of Armageddon. Did you know that Nazareth overlooks the Valley of Armageddon? When Jesus was 12 years old in Nazareth, do you think he looked out over the, the, the valley and thought, 
That's where I'm gonna return and conquer all the nations of the world. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, like Jesus looking over the Valley of Armageddon as he was growing up? It, it makes you think about stuff like that. But the very first thing he does, he goes back to the town of Nazareth and let's read, it's, it's, it's Luke chapter four, verse 16. It says, and Jesus came to Nazareth <clears throat> where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now pause for a second. This tells us about what Jesus' role was early in his ministry. He's what we might call an itinerant rabbi. He would be a rabbi, a teacher who would go into the, uh, you know, the synagogue there in Nazareth. And by the way, there's a couple synagogues in Nazareth you can go visit um, and people debate is this the one that Jesus was in when he read this, uh, this story here in Luke 4? Um, a couple of synagogues that I've visited in Na uh, Nazareth that are kind of interesting. But they were first century synagogues, so it's kind of fun to see these places. But Jesus goes in, as was his custom, so it means that he was a guy who would go in and read from the scroll, that is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He'd read the scriptures to the people. So that's what he's doing. So he goes to read, verse 17, and there was delivered unto him the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. <clears throat> and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go too slowly here, but how do you find the place that it was written? It didn't say, he turned to Isaiah 61, verses one and two. Didn't say that, why? Because they didn't have the verses and the chapters back in those days. Um, they just said, he turned to that place in the scripture that said this. Can you imagine if that's how we had to find our scriptures today? Okay, I want you guys to turn your Bible to the book uh, in the Bible, Isaiah, but the part where he talks about the acceptable year of our Lord, okay? Like how many of you would know, oh yeah, okay, I, know, I think I know where that's at. And let alone, not only are you flipping pages, you're messing with a scroll, you know, like, like trying to get the scroll. Like this is amazing. I'm thankful for chapters and verses, but Jesus, he opens up the scroll you gotta picture this, I, I tell you this for a reason. He had a, he had a real purpose that day and he wanted to read an exact scripture that day that would be powerful and important. So he opens up the scroll and bam, what we know as Isaiah 61, he reads this, it says, he opened the book, found the place where it was written and Jesus read, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue fast, were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? What's this? Remember, this is the town he grew up in. They're like, wait a minute. What did he just say? And what did he just read? And wait, isn't he just, what, what's this all about? Why were they fastening their eyes on him? What was going on there? Well, there's a ton of stuff going on here. First of all, Jesus reads the scripture and he reads to the point where it says, you know, and, and it says to preach the acceptable year of our Lord. Keep your finger here in Luke four, but because we're gonna go back to this, but go back to Isaiah. Where did Jesus stop reading? He stopped his reading mid-sentence. 
He put a period where there was no period. And, and now I gotta say there's no punctuation in the ancient language of the Bible. But the idea is, check this out. In Isaiah uh, 61, Jesus read verse one, and then verse two, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And then to also, you know, make those in Zion exchange beauty for ashes. So why did Jesus stop mid-sentence? You see, this would have been a no-no. <laughs> you, you don't read part of a scroll scripture you, and, and stop mid-sentence. Jesus said to preach the acceptable year of our Lord and you would have been waiting for him to finish that. But then he closes up the scrolls and he goes and sits down. And they would have been saying, finish the sentence. <laughs> so their eyes were fastened on him. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? You, you almost wonder if that's what they were thinking. Who do you think you are to read only half a verse, not even finish the sentence? And then Jesus answered their question, didn't he? This very day, this saying in Isaiah has been fulfilled. Huh? What? See, the Jews knew that Isaiah 61, as we know it, that when you talked about the one that was coming to set the captives free, to preach the acceptable year of our Lord, the Jews knew that's the Messiah. So when Jesus sat down and they had their eyes fixed on him for not finishing a sentence, who do you think you are? Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. That's what he said. He was saying, I'm the one fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, the one that's gonna heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free, that's me. And so they were stunned. Well, Brett, Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. Can you understand why then they would say, isn't this Joseph's son? We saw this punk kid grow up in our neighborhood and you're saying you're the Messiah? We know you as Joseph's son. How could this be? Now, what was their response after that? Was it, we worship you as the Messiah, you're amazing? Nope, go back to Luke real quick and let's see what they did. Let's jump forward a little bit. Verse 28. Luke 4, 28, it says, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to unto uh, the brow of the hill. That would be the hillside of Nazareth that I told you about that goes down the cliffs. And they, they, uh, they led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went on, their way, on his way. What does that mean? Um, he disappeared. I, man, I'm gonna check out that video when I get into heaven, man. I'm gonna see, you know, get this guy. This is the guy that grew up and he's claiming to be the Messiah. Throw him off the cliff head first. Oh, come on, and they're dragging him around all of a sudden. He's gone. And they're just like, where'd he go? What'd you do with him? Where'd he go? I don't know. I, I, you had him. I didn't have him. You had him. You know, I mean, I just, I love this. Why did Jesus disappear from among their midst right there? Because it wasn't his hour to be killed. That would be when he'd go to the cross in Jerusalem. But see, this story starts to make a lot of sense when you realize what's going on. Now, this is where I, get, I find it interesting. Why did Jesus stop mid-sentence? We know the answer. If Jesus had continued to read, he couldn't have said what he did that day in Nazareth. What he said to them, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in yours. In other words, his first coming, when he was Jesus of Nazareth, his first coming, 
he could say that really verses one and the first part of verse two was fulfilled, that I've come to heal the brokenhearted, open the captivity of the captive, set the prisoners free. I've come to bind up their wounds. I've come to do all those things and to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. But why didn't he read on? Because the next line says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he not read that line? Well, that's not his first coming. That's his second coming. The second coming of Christ would be fulfilled Oh, you know, whenever, 1900, almost 2000 years later, his second coming, he would come to bring the vengeance of God. Do you realize that? The first time he came to heal the brokenhearted, to open wide the prison doors, the next time he's coming, he's coming to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Did you know that's part of the purpose of why he's coming the second time is to, to judge the nations of the world? But this is where it gets really interesting and I wish we had more time. We'll, we'll maybe go into this a little more on Wednesday. But notice, let's read on verse two. This is the second coming of Christ. The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Man, that's the day we live in. People are in mourning. The second coming of Christ is gonna help those that mourn. But there's a specific group that he's gonna focus on. To appoint, verse three, unto them that mourn in Zion. Question, who are they that are mourning in Zion? Anybody? The Jews, are the Jews mourning in Zion? Yes. Um, there's no greater picture of that, if you ask me, than the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. The Muslims for centuries now have made the Jews be down on the lowest section of the wall, which is you know, getting to those older stones of ancient Jerusalem where you know, more of the temple period and the Jews, they wail, they call it the wailing wall. Why do they weep and mourn at the wailing wall there and, and pray? It's because they realize the Temple Mount's being trodden down under Gentiles. The Dome of the Rock Shrine and the, the uh, you know, Alaska Mosque is up there and, and, um, and they don't have access. They don't have sacrifice, they don't have a temple. And the Jews mourn in Jerusalem. Because, you know, if you talk to a Jew, a, a religious Jew today, and you ask them directly, hey, how are your sins forgiven? It's a little bit of an awkward question you'll find for a lot of Jews to answer. Because, you know, the, the Jews that know the scriptures, they say, well, technically we're supposed to have a temple and have sacrificial system and sacrifices lambs and, and blood, blood sacrifice for redemption. They, they understand the day of atonement. Yom Kippur is, what is it, tomorrow? Tomorrow. <clears throat> Um, the day of atonement for the Jews. They know that you have to sacrifice a lamb, but they don't have that. That's why they mourn. And so if you pin them down, I've talked to Jews and they said, well, we pray. We pray that our sins, you know, will be um, covered or, you know, but, but there's an awkwardness. They, they know if they know their Hebrew Bible, they know that something's got to give that there needs to be a blood sacrifice. And there was Jesus, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. They just don't know that it's Jesus. So the ones that are mourning in Jerusalem, the rest of this verse three is talking specifically about the Jews. One of the things in the second coming of Christ is he's gonna exchange beauty for ashes. Do, do the Jews have a history of ashes? Man, there's no greater persecuted people in all the history of the world than the Jews. Ask the family members that are alive today of loved ones that were burned in the ovens of Nazi Germany. Beauty for ashes. The Jews, when you listen to their music, it's in a minor note. The Jews, you know, today, anti-Semitism is on the rise and people hate the Jews around the world because they're God's chosen people. 
One of the things that's gonna happen when Christ returns is not only is he gonna do all the things verses one and two, but he's also gonna restore and bless the nation Israel. He's gonna exchange beauty for ashes. Instead of um, you know, mourning, he's gonna anoint them with the oil of joy. Instead of that spirit of heaviness, he's gonna give them a spirit of praise and song that they might be called the trees of righteousness. A tree of righteousness implies solid life that's gonna be given to the Jews. So really, there's so much packed in this little three-verse trilogy uh, of a story, and that's why I think Jesus preaching this as his first sermon is most amazing. The very first thing Jesus reads out of the book of Isaiah is, oh, this is all pretty much fulfilled, verses one and two and a half. That's fulfilled today. Why? Because that was his first coming. The second part of it, bringing vengeance and wrath upon the world, saving of the Jewish people, and bringing in his millennial kingdom, that would be the second coming of Christ. I don't know about you, I'm so thankful for his first coming. Without that, we'd all be doomed. But I also, because of his first coming and that I'm saved by the grace of God, I'm also really excited about his second coming. And I think that that, the stage is set, the world scene is perfectly lined up for the second coming of Christ. And we as Christians can be looking forward to that day when Christ comes and deals with the sins of this world and brings in everlasting righteousness. Would you pray with me as we close? And if you're a Christian, would you just have an attitude of prayer right now, just of thanksgiving? Because man, if you're like me, I'm just so thankful that he heals the brokenhearted and open wide the prison door. And, and for you that are Christians, just if everything's good in your life, just rejoice and praise the Lord just in prayer right now. If you're a Christian who finds themselves still in bondage to addiction, He's declared you to be free. It's time for you to take the one-step program for, for real and say, I'm gonna, for, I'm gonna repent of that sin right now, whatever that is, and I'm gonna turn and accept the freedom that Christ declares, because he declares freedom to the captive. That, that's, that could be you. If you're still stuck in your sins, man, the Lord wants to free you up today. You know, um, there's an old saying, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. So the Lord is the one who gives you the strength to overcome whatever addiction you have. But it also takes you to repent and make up your mind and say, I'm gonna walk with Christ. And so some of you might need to deal with that right now. Just confess your sin to the Lord and he'll forgive you. And you can walk out of this room. You can turn off this online thing and, and understand that, man, my sins are forgiven. And I don't have to go out and be addicted anymore and you can fight the good fight of faith. Thirdly, if you're a person who's not a Christian at all, you've never accepted Christ, you're still in your sins. And the cost of sin is death and hell, and the Bible says you're headed that direction. And apart from Jesus, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Only Christ is the one who saves. Jesus made that declaration. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus. So as you confess Christ and say, okay, I, I repent of my sins and I choose to believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave, just like he said he would. By the way, that's one of the most provable historical events in all the world, that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And that's why the world was turned upside down from that day forward. And you have that chance right now to be saved and have your sins forgiven. 
Why are there Christians walking around this world today with joy in their heart, even though their lives might be in ruin or even be in trouble? It's because we know we have the hope of heaven and our sins are forgiven, so we rejoice in Christ. Don't go another day without accepting Jesus. If you're one who's never accepted Christ, here's what you do. Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, it says you will be saved. Confession with the mouth, belief in the heart, it's that simple. Just confess this, say, Lord, I accept you into my heart. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I believe that you rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Just confess that to the Lord right now and pray that and then say, Lord, forgive me, save me. And that confession, believing and confessing, that leads to salvation, that's what the Bible says and you're saved. It doesn't mean you have to go to church every Sunday or give your money to the church or it doesn't mean you have to go on a mission. It just means that you've accepted the free gift of Christ and you're a forgiven, saved Christian. The other stuff comes later as you learn how good Christ is, then you respond. Faith without works is dead. So what happens is when you're a Christian of faith, then you're gonna start to see good works in your life that you never expected before. That's what James was saying. So Lord, I pray your blessing this morning on all your people, for those that are saved and are rejoicing, for those that are struggling with sin and addiction. Lord, give them strength to overcome and be victorious. For those that are just being saved right now by confession with their mouth and belief in their heart, Lord, wrap your loving arms around them that they would know your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, this story here, or this section of scripture, Isaiah 61, so packed full of amazing truth. Lord, I pray that we'd be rejoicing because you're the one that heals the brokenhearted, open wide the prison doors, turn mourning into joy, spirit of heaviness into song. Lord, how thankful we are for your goodness. Lift up your church, Lord, to be encouraged this morning. As we go our way, bless your people, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.